On the southwest tip of the island of Great Britain lies Cornwall, a peninsula edged by steep rocky cliffs topped with rolling green sheep pastures. The tiny village of Mevagizzi in the south was once a major fishing port. It has a tradition of boat building going back to the early 1700s. Today, the village typifies the quintessential charming tourist destination, with colorful wooden boats bobbing in the harbor below restaurants and ice cream parlors. But there are still some working fishing boats, manned by seasoned, weathered fishermen. They're holding on to an almost forgotten way of life, one that ties their livelihood to the whims of nature, with all of the thrill and hardship that goes along with it. Their lives are governed by tides and weather and time. A fisherman goes out where and when the fish are, day or night. There's nothing else to it. Roy, where do you want to go? I want to interview you. My name is Malcolm Saunders from Mevagizzi. Mevagizzi is a little tiny fishing harbour in Cornwall in the UK. I've been fishing, that's all I've ever done. You know, just fishing, that's all I do, that's all I know. You know, it's mad life, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. Malcolm pulled his boat up to meet me in the inner harbor, where children were catching small crabs with nets bought from local shops. Right, here we go. We set out to leave the harbor and talk among the rocks in the outer bay. But suddenly, Malcolm realizes he's forgotten something important. Ah, coffee! We're gonna get some coffee. Okay. We make a quick detour and pull up below a tiny cafe called Seashells, where Malcolm is clearly a regular. My private coffee house. Do you want a coffee? Yeah. Not that. Rose, two coffee. Do you want Americana? Sure. There we go. Is yeah, here's, here's, here you go. This is a cold, this is a sugar. Sugar. Okay. sugar. We'll just go somewhere out of the way, man. Okay. Without being in the prison. We head through the inner and outer harbors under blue skies on a mild morning. Rocks poke up through the water close to shore. It's crazy, in the old days, all these rocks had names. That was Black Rock. That sleepy lady, that's a white lady, even the rocks had names. The sea beyond the bay was lovely and private. People have never visited, so nosy. But the wind forced us back to the inner harbor, where conversation was easier. Right, here we go. No noise. I'm 60. This year, 60. Happy birthday. <laughs> Made it. <laughs> Surprisingly. 
I'm semi-retired, you know. In fact, I should be fully retired. Just have major heart surgery. I really? shouldn't really do anything. Yeah. How long ago? Six months. Well, you can't let it get you down, can you? If you could lay there in hospital, just going, oh no, I'm ill, or you just get on with life. And that's what I did. You'll have to prompt me because uh, I need to have direction, or else I'll just ramble on a load of rubbish, <laughs> and then you'll get fed up with it. Okay, let's see. Um... Can you describe where we are a little bit, what, what you see? We are moored up alongside a trawler where my mate David owns. And we're moored on what we call East Key, which is a long arm, which is full of all the fishing gear, where we keep the tourists away from this area. It's just purely for the fishing boats. And then as you go around the harbour, all the cafes and restaurants and ice cream parlors, they all used to be our fishing lofts or the fish merchants, you know, cold stores for keeping their fish. But in the 60s, fishing just hit a real big decline. We used to have a factory here, we call it the Pilchard Factory, which was huge, right in the middle of the village. And that's gone now, that's been knocked down and turned into old age pensioners flats and now all the fishing lofts and the fish merchant stores along the front they've all sold them to various people coming down from London with money and then they just turn them into restaurants and pubs and ice cream parlors so the rest of the quay apart from one little small area where we land our fish is all just filled for the tourist trade which Without, it, the village would probably stagnate and die. Malcolm was born and raised two miles from this tiny fishing village. I spent my whole life fishing. I left school at 15 to work commercially, which I've done ever since. But even prior to that, I was out with my uncles from the age of four or five. They were what we call beach sailors. They used to fish off the beaches so they could take youngsters with them because they just stayed on the beach while they shot the net out around the fish and pulled it back in. So, you know, we could, it was mostly at night they did it, actually. It was a night job more than anything. They would be there for uh, what we call dimpsy, which is the, like twilight, you know, when it's changing from daylight to dark, we call that dimpsy. And they would be there for that and then work until they caught enough fish to make a night's work. During the daylight hours, the fish tend to hide away and they tuck themselves in little corners where they're safe, but in the dark they feel safer, so they just wander around feeding and, you know, these blokes they knew from experience where the fish would go during the night and they would just wait for them, shoot the net around them and pull them in on the beach. What kind of fish would they catch? They would catch anything from mackerel mainly to bass and grey mullet, sea bass and grey mullet, and they were the three major catches. Well, yeah, then I went, obviously, as a lad on a big boat and threw up on my first rough weather, was seasick, and then after that, just got used to it, and uh, I spent about six months doing my apprenticeship on uh, a boat called the Erin, which was one of the really old-fashioned boats. The, the boat never even had a wheelhouse. We just used to stand on the deck 
<laughs> but we had a mile of pilchard nets we used to put out and we'd just shoot the nets and then haul them through the night again and get in about three o'clock in the morning. That was hard work for very little money. But that was like the training ship. Most of the lads started on that one and then you moved on once you started learning how to do the knots and net mending. You then progressed on the bigger and better boats, which is what I then did. Malcolm went to college and became a captain, allowing him to command fishing ships all over Europe. For 20 years I worked in Spain, worked for a Dutch company for a long time. And we just used to roam the Atlantic, you know, anywhere from the Azores up to Rockall, across the Denmark, and that was chasing mostly... Well, when I was in Spain, it was hake we used to chase, and swordfish, longlining. And when I was a Dutch company, we were fishing mostly for Dover soles, and also for mackerel, doing a lot of mackerel, we call it pelagic fish, mackerel, herring, pilchard. The life of a fisherman comes with long hours and lots of time away from home. That took its toll on other parts of Malcolm's life. And after 20 years of that, my wife then decided she'd had enough of me working away, so she went as well. And I thought, well, I've just wasted 20 years of my life out there and thought, that's it, and I came back home. She left? Yeah. Well, you know, you're never home. I used to be away for three months sometimes, you know, when we were working away. And you know, I don't blame her. She had to find a life and found it with another bloke. So anyway, we're friends, so it doesn't matter. We had three lovely kids and we're all friends. It's all right, everything's good. But yeah, I decided that was enough. So I've always had my little boat, which we're on at the moment. I had this one in 1980, I had it built by the local boat builder, you can see his yard, and he, John Moore, he built the boat for me, and uh, we used to go out with the kids and stuff to the beach and that. And now I've decided to use it commercially. Is there a name for this kind of boat? Not really. You would just call it a Cornish crabber, that was, but it's not really got a name. These are the, yeah, they say crabber, they're lobster pots. Crabs, lobsters, it's much the same thing, you know. They, you use the same equipment in roughly the same areas. They're in strings of six, six on a long line of rope. You bait them up, I can't tell you the bait, it's top secret. And uh, then you leave them for a couple of days, and then the lobsters go in and feed on the bait, and I tend to sell them to the local restaurants, and they love that because it's local lobsters, local fish, you know, in a local restaurant, and, well, it's good. No carbon footprint. This size boat is what I call subsistence living. You know, you, you, just, you just survive off it, that's all. You, you don't buy a brand new car or go on holiday or a house. You, you just, it's just enough to get by on, that's all, you know. I mean, a really good fisherman works really hard, could buy a house out of it, but it'd be very difficult. I mean, you always work for yourself, even when you work for a company, you're still self-employed. You know, when I work for the big Dutch company and the Spanish company, you are self-employed. On the Spanish boat, there was 18, 20 crew. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's quite work intensive. You know, you're away for a long time. You know, you need, you have to work shift work, so you need two lots of crew, so one can sleep while the other is working. So, yeah, it's quite a lot of crew. Malcolm took a break from working on the big boats when he was around 25 years old. That was the first time he used this crabber boat commercially. It was a big adjustment back then. I did two years of work in it on my own, but I was only young. And it was just boring working on your own day in, day out, and I got fed up with it. And so I went back on the big boats again, just for company more. I used to end up singing and talking to myself out there. There was no one else to talk to, and you just go mad in the end. I kind of can't imagine you in that situation. Well, yeah. that was horrible. I love talking. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so I went back on the big boats then. That's, like I say, when I went all around Europe. After the breakup of his marriage prompted him to reevaluate his life around eight or nine years ago, working locally on his small boat felt different than it did when he was 25. You know, I mean, like I said, when I worked this boat first, two years of it, and I just went mad. I just it was craving for company, the sound of a voice. So. But after 20 years on the big boats, and where I was working with so many people, I was now glad to get back to being on the own. So it's gone a complete reversal. But age, and you know, age is, changes you. That's the thing, and you know? when you're young, you're looking for action, looking for things to happen. And when you get older, you realise that life's too short. Just enjoy it a bit more. So. Yeah, I mean, I do spend more time contemplating, we'll say. Yeah, I mean, if I work my lines, I do work lines for bass, where I just tow lines behind the boat, trolling, they call it. And I mean, you could be sat there for an hour without catching a single fish, and those are the times, I suppose, when you, you start thinking, and then you think too much sometimes. You overthink things, don't you? That's what I find with life. If you, if you spend too much time on a particular subject, you can overthink it. You can make yourself depressed. <laughs> you just think, oh no. You get past all the good bits and start thinking the bad bits, and then they just start dominating. It's better not to go that road, isn't it? But, there's one thing that Malcolm is never at risk of overthinking, how he feels about fishing. Never do anything different. It's just amazing. It's every, every aspect of it, you've either got it or you haven't. You know, you, you don't actually have to be born in a fishing village to have it, but it helps if you do, because it, it, it's inbred in you as a child. You come down to the harbour and the boats are there and you just, but I've known people who, who've never, seen the sea until they were 16 and they turned out to be really good fishermen you know it's the hunt you know you you it's a hunter situation you know you go out with nothing and you're trying to make a living to make you know, to feed the family basically and uh, you, you go out with nothing and hopefully come back with a boat full of fish and then so every fish you see coming over the side of the boat after a few years, it, they, you just see them as pound notes coming over, or dollars for you. You just see that as money coming over the rail of the boat. But you're working. You work. It's, a boat is nothing but work. You never go fishing. 
It's the hardest job you'll ever do in your life. When you go out, I mean, you know, you could be, I could be cleaning the boat now. If you look around the boat, it's dirty. I mean, years ago when I was young, I would have been cleaning the boat. You get to the fishing grounds and then you set the nets. And then uh, once you start hauling them, you're just constantly clearing nets. The nets come in, got to get the fish out, got to get the seaweed out, get the crabs out. And then once you've done that, you then got to pull them back, what we call clearing, to get the head and foot separate for shooting again, over the rail again. And that just goes on all night. And then you, know, you have to make yourself stop. You have to say, right, I'm going to stop now and have a cup of coffee, you have a flask, have a coffee and a sandwich or something. I mean, I don't often bother with it. I just go out and work, and the, the hungrier and thirstier you are, the quicker you get back in. But yeah, it's just constant work. That's all there is. Malcolm has found that the best time for him to do all this work is at night. The, the crazy thing is, when I started on this boat, when I had it first, I didn't work nights, but then I see it's the best way, so we started working nights. So I don't go very far off the coast, so I'd go 10 miles to the west or 10 miles to the east. But I'm always close to the shore. I'd have to shoot you if I told you where I went. But there are little places we know, like red mullet, like a certain bit of ground, and you, and you know where it is. I mean, even these days, even boats like mine, we've got track plotters, like a GPS you use in your car. So at night, we can go to rocks which years ago you couldn't do because you needed landmarks to find them, but now we can do it in the dark. Unlike with most modern nine-to-five work, a fisherman's hours are dictated by many factors outside their control. There's weather, tides, and of course, seasons. With the night fishing, obviously the days change. We're in June, are we June month now? But anyway, we're near the longest day of the year where we get an 18-hour day, but in the winter, we only get a, an eight-hour day. So this time of year, you'd go out just before dark. So this time of year, you would actually work right through the dark until daylight. In the winter, you, I would go at, say, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, shoot the nets, go in somewhere, get some tea, and then go back out as soon as it's dark and start hauling the nets again. Depending on how much fish you got, I could be back in by one or two o'clock in the morning. If you've got a lot of fish, obviously you wouldn't get back in maybe till dinner time the next day. So it can be quite tiring, yeah. But I love working the nights, the nights are brilliant. As a youngster, I wouldn't have, but now I'm older, I love it, because you're on your own, and you don't have to worry about people following you, you know, people who don't know where to... This is another of the problems with fishing. We got a lot of newcomers coming into the fishing industry who are not from traditional families. They're getting laid off from shore jobs, people like in their 50s, they're too young to retire, they get a £50,000 redundancy package and they think, oh, I'll go and buy a fishing boat. And then they come here and then they follow us, the professional fishermen, and they have GPSs so they can track us and they can plot us down. In the old days you couldn't do it, but nowadays they can do this and then they just go and buy the nets already made up instead of making them themselves. They can buy it all made. 
and the next minute they're following you around and then they're catching the fish that you were chasing and then because they're catching fish and you're catching there's more fish on the market so the price goes down so then we get low prices then you've got to catch more fish to make the same money but then you can't catch more fish because you've got a quota <laughs> so, and it just goes round you like a dog chasing its own tail but they won't go out at night they're too scared to go out at night you've got to be a professional to go out at night so you don't get much harassment from them at night and it's great yeah But there's nothing more beautiful, especially at night. You got the lights on, and you catch. I catch red mullet in the summer, and they look beautiful in the, in the light. They're shining because my nets are only in the water for an hour or so, and therefore the fish are in prime condition. All the scales are on them, and they come out and they're just glistening. And red mullet, as their name suggests, are bright red, and in the light with the water glistening, they just look beautiful. Any fish, mackerel, they're all the same, but underneath the lights, it just intensifies their beauty. And that's just the start. Then you got the weather, you know, even bad weather can be nice, as long as it's not too bad. Well, it's just it's invigorating. You know, you're coming back, the boat's full of fish, you're hitting the seas, the spray's flying back, and you don't care. You're thinking, oh, I've got 500 quid worth of fish here for a night's work. That's all right. You know, you just put up with it and get in and go and have a hot shower and go to bed and everything's perfect. And then on a fine night, you look up and there's stars and cloudless sky, no moon out, and you see all the stars up there. And I just lie back on the stern of the boat looking up, my hat nearly falls off, and I'm trying to make out all the constellations, but. That's brilliant, you, know, you see shooting stars all the time. You get like 20 minutes, half an hour a night where you can just forget everything, but even then you still got to steer the boat, you don't steer itself. <laughs> you get too contemplative and you end up on the rocks. <laughs> even though Malcolm goes out to catch fish by himself, in those solitary nights, He's rarely really alone. Dolphins, whales, everything, seals, you name it, it's just, it's all out there. Nighttime, oh, I mean, everything about it. I mean, I could just sit here all day telling you about it. Like, the weather, I just, it's amazing, you know, lightning storms. I mean, the first time I saw dolphins at night, you know, I was in the bow of the boat. And I could hear the squeaking, you know, they squeak. I'm like, what's that squeaking? I look over the bow, and the dolphins were in the bow wave of the boat, in the dark, but then we get this stuff called phosphorescence. It's like a plankton-y stuff which glows green. And as they were going through the water, you could just see the outline of each dolphin completely defined in this electric blue, and, you, and then a, they, the fish would move and they would chase the fish. You know, I mean, the first time you see that, it's incredible. One night I hauled the nets, and I'd be clearing them on the boat, ready to shoot again, and uh, you could smell this really fishy smell, and then you hear this snorting. And it took me quite a while to realise it was a seal that used to follow me, and when I used to throw away the damaged fish that the crabs had nibbled, 
he used to be waiting there to pick up the dead fish and he was just beside me. And then one night I happened to put me spotlight around and I saw his head in the water beside me. I thought, oh yeah, it's a seal. And then I worked out, he used to follow me from the harbour every night. But it was only on fine nights that you could tell he was beside you. It was too windy and that, you couldn't tell. But on a fine night, you could hear him and smell him even, his breath. God, he used to stink his breath. That's just a grumpy old sound. On the fishing boat at night, what you can't see can be as important as what you can. In the daylight, you can see the seas, which sometimes is better if you can. But then, no, it's better to be able to see it because in the night when they're coming at you, it, you don't know when the big ones are coming. They just suddenly hit you. I mean, we was up off Wales one night coming around um, the Skerries, top end of Wales. And we'd been dodging the weather because it was so bad. And then the weather started to ease. So I said, we'll go back to the fishing ground. So we come around there in the dark and then suddenly she just, the boat just dipped her nose and it's, great wall of green water just went up over the bow and hit the wheelhouse windows. All the wheelhouse on the big boat was back aft. The boat was 24 metres long and the wheelhouse is probably two-thirds of the way back. It was a huge adrenaline rush. I mean, the, you know when the boat hits a big wave, and the, the only way you know in the dark is because it's pitch black. The only, you, you feel the boat hit it, it's like a great thud and the boat just nearly stops. And then, normally, it just carries on, but this time, that wave just hit the wheelhouse and uh, then it's like thump on the windows and you just look out and it's just green. It's just, they come at you green, it's just a green wall. And it hit the wheel, I thought, my God, and I switched the deck lights on and the whole of the boat was full of water. And the only thing sticking out was the wheelhouse and the mast forward. We were completely underwater. And I thought, oh my God, what do I do here? And then another wave hit us and just topped up the little bit that had drained off. And I thought, my God, I better stop. So I eased the engine right back. God, I thought we were doomed. I thought, that's it, we were gonna sink here. You know, and you just wonder what you can do. And then you think, well, no, there isn't anything you can do. It's just in the hands of the gods. You just pray that the crew have, have bolted down all the hatches, you know. It's like a tin can. If you push it underwater and let go, it will bob up again. So whenever we steam, there's usually a mate on the boat and you say to the mate, go around and check all the hatches and make sure they're all sealed because uh, that has been the loss of several boats through steaming with hatches open, fill up with water, and then the water just goes straight down below, and then you, you, you lose your buoyancy, your integrity's gone, and you, you just roll over, gone. But she slowly came up and cleared all the water through the scuppers, and the next couple of waves weren't so big, and then she shook herself clear, and off we went again. There's no shortage of things that keep a fisherman vigilant in the middle of the night. All fishing is dangerous, and, and nighttime obviously accentuates it because you can't really see what you're doing. But I'm actually pushing for people to all wear headlights. These days, you get these little LED lights. You can actually get them incorporated into your cap. They, they're in the peak of the cap, the little on-off button. 
because a lot of fishermen work at night and I feel they should have a, a personal light with them all the time because even on a boat that's well lit there are always corners where there's darkness where you could trip over stuff and this and that and if you fell over the side if you've got a light on your head and you fall in the water the boat if you're on a boat with crew I'm not but if you're on a boat with crew they can see you in the water so I keep suggesting it to people and deaf ears they not no one's really interested so the big boats, I mean, I've had a laddie fell over the side in the dark. I was in the wheelhouse, obviously, doing my job, and I sort of fall over, so I jumped out down over the ladder onto the deck and went over the side and held onto the, the rail of the boat with my left arm, and as he went by me, I just scooped him out of the water and slung him up onto the rail, and then the other crew sorted up and they came and dragged him in, but... Yeah, oh yeah, people fall over the side. See, in the night, if it's so hard with a big boat, it's got a big turning circle. And by the time you turn around, you know what I mean? You don't know if you're coming back to exactly the same place where he fell over. And if you miss him by 200 yards in the dark, that could be the difference between life and death. So you don't want to fall over in the dark. For the captain of a commercial fishing vessel, the most important thing is keeping your crew safe, which is sometimes easier said than done. Well, that was the one thing I always said, if I ever lost anybody, I would never go back to sea. Well, not on a crewed boat again. I said, if I ever lost anybody or killed anybody on the boat, I would never, I could never go back to sea again. And touch wood, I never did. I hopefully never will. It must be horrendous having someone because when you're the captain of the boat you're like god everything revolves around you 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 run that boat everything every minute of their life is dominated by you and therefore if you lose a life you are totally responsible 100 percent it's scary yeah and i couldn't have ever lived with that Despite the best intentions, any lifelong fisherman has known others who were lost. Uh, you caught me on the halt because I wasn't really ready for this. Um, oh. Well, you tend to, the thing is, when you're uh, doing a dangerous job, you, you tend to blank out the bad bits. I mean, in my lifetime, I've probably personally known 20 people who have died at sea on other boats, not on my boat, but on other boats. And it gets you in, I mean, that's just personally I know, and I know, I've heard or known vaguely many more. And in the end, you just have to harden yourself to it because you know very well it could be you next week, you know? And it, it hardens you to the death factor. You, you just tend to, you tend to be a bit flippant about it in the end and laugh rather than get sad because that's it. You just, you wouldn't go to sea again. In one year alone, the Wilhelmina J sank in the Dover Straits with six crew. And then nine months later, the Ocean Hound went down about five miles different place, run down by a ship, another six crew gone. 
And then we five years ago, we lost my best mate here. He, he, he was on a boat that sank, went back, and he was dead when they got him out of the water. What happened? Well, the boat sank, they had too much fish. Yeah, there's so much fish on the boat, and it just went down, and they saved the crew, the, the skipper and the other crew, but the mate, James, he, when they got him, he was dead. He was already dead when they got him aboard. Just seemed to give up. It was horrendous. Night fishing again. I mean, no one knows why he died. I mean, the skipper of the boat survived, the other crew survived. He should have survived. I mean, maybe he just... Some people are different, and they react different to situations, but he definitely didn't make it. It's life, isn't it? A lot more life and death. I mean, you lose people all the time, you know? you just got to get used to it. It's, you know, you say it's never going to happen, but it does happen. It's, it's Ginge, I think he might have been 50. Would he? he might have just been 50. You get up around your 60s and 70s and 80s, at least you can say you've had a life, you know. I don't know where you go, but you can sit up there on that star saying, well, at least I did something. There aren't a lot of professions in this day and age that embody the elements of passion, danger, and tradition the way fishing does. In this modern technological world, Commercial fishing, particularly in places like Cornwall, can seem like a piece of history frozen in time. But that contrast can lead to problems. Well, that is complicated, but I was a poacher. You see, I come from the generation where we could go out and just fill the boat up with fish. We didn't have to worry about anything. Anyway, we were catching fish, filling boats up with fish, tons of fish everywhere. Then we joined the EU, the quotas came in. And they suddenly turned around and said, oh no, sorry, you're going to catch 100 tonne. And we go, well, no, I'm not going to do it. I've been catching fish all my life. I'm not having you tell me that I'm not allowed to catch fish. It is about overfishing, yeah. But the trouble is with the fishing is that you're catching this fish. It comes aboard, you can't not catch fish. You can't put a sign at the front of the net that says, only a hundred ton, no more. You know, because it would just, if the fish are there, they just go in. So what do you do? Chuck back dead fish. They're not gonna live, they're dead. So we would just bring it in and it was called black fish. We used to sell it to unscrupulous fish buyers who didn't care where it came from. The days of, um, I forget what they call it, traceability weren't even thought of. So no one asked, where does this fish come from? Things are different now. In recent times, the responsible fishing scheme has been put in place to keep overfishing in check. And there are also methods to trace fish in order to verify that they were caught sustainably. The old time fishermen like Malcolm have had a bit of a rocky time adjusting to the new rules. I went to court on two or three occasions for exceeding quotas. I've won some cases, and other cases I've lost. You know, the last time, it was uh, 47,000 quid. Oh, they just fine you, but uh, yeah, I've, I've, I, nearly every fisherman on the big boats has been in trouble with the law at some time, even if it's just cautionary, you know. They, most fishermen have 
it's so complicated. The laws are so complicated. They have a book which is like a Bible, literally the size of, a, of the, the Holy Bible, and it's just rules of fishing. And I said to them one day, I said, well, look, you keep doing me. You keep telling me I've been fishing the league. I'm doing it. I said, right, I want a copy of all your laws so I can read it. And he came out of the office with his great big Bible. He said, there you are. He said, do you want to read that? I said, no, thank you, and walked out. <laughs> I didn't realise how complicated it was. Back in the old days, Malcolm and the other fishermen had some fun evading the authorities. The thing was, we had... We had such sophisticated equipment on the boats that we could tell where the authorities were. They used to have a plane, or a plane, there were about three planes that used to fly around the country all day. They had the, um, the patrol boats, but they all used to t- stay in contact with London, so we used to have these radios with a scanner, and we used to scan the frequencies until we picked them up. And then we just used to listen to their instructions from London, and then we'd know where they were going, then we'd head the opposite direction. So one night when we knew they were coming to Plymouth, there was about 10 pair teams all chasing mackerel, and uh, we knew they were going to be out. They were going to have two aeroplanes and three patrol boats, all to make sure we were fishing legally. So we all went into Plymouth for the night, and just went on the beer, had a really good night out. And one of the crew was on, who didn't drink, Scotty, he was called, he stayed on the boat, he listened to the radio all night, and he said they were going frantic. They go, where are all the boats gone? There aren't any boats out here. Yeah, and they were looking for us all night, couldn't find us, in the end they gave up. <laughs> we were in Plymouth, all drunk as skunks. <laughs> it was so funny. But yeah, that, that, that was the good old days, but... You can't do that because all the boats now, anything over 12 metres long has to have a tracker on them. There is a proper name, I forget it. Anyway, this tracker is a GPS. It goes to a satellite and then goes to the MMO. That's the Marine Management. And they can track every single fishing boat in the UK. So they, if you go at the night, they still know where you are the tracker doesn't work you're not allowed to go to sea so you can't fiddle it now it's completely all fishing now 99.9 percent of fishing is all legitimate now in the old days it was a bit of the dark but we, we've all gone legit now i mean we don't like it i mean there's still we consider to be a lot more fish out there than they're allowing us to catch but i've gone poacher turned gamekeeper I now fish completely legitimately, and I'm a a responsible fisherman. Malcolm is also committed to helping the profession continue. It's a good future for the fishing. I mean, I'm trying to pass my knowledge down because I, all what I used to call the old timers, I am now a old timer, (laughs) or nearly. Not quite, but anyway, they taught me loads. Where Bill Hawking, one of the old timers, he he drew the rocks because we didn't have GPS, and he, he he showed all the landmarks on a piece of paper, and what to look to line up different bits on the land so you could find these rocks at sea, and I've still got the paper with his writing all in old copper plate writing, 
But unfortunately, he did it in pencil and it's fading away. Every time I look at it, it's a little bit more faded. Anyway, he passed his knowledge on to me, so I am feeling I should pass my knowledge on to the younger lads here now. That's my nephew, James, FY111. How old is he? 31, 32. He's a fisherman? Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a fisherman. How many people in your family are fisher people, fishermen? Well, me and my brother were the only two left. Yeah, he's a fisherman. But he's retired near and now he's older than me. That's his son. Malcolm won't be passing down the fishing tradition to his own kids. My three sons never went fishing. Well, my oldest son went fishing, but I was on the big boats and he didn't like it. It was too much time at sea and he wanted to meet girls and have a drink. And so he did about two years with me and packed in and he now is an electrical engineer, which is good. One of Malcolm's other sons is a civil engineer and the other is a musician. So I don't want him to damage his hands because it's fishing. I don't know, you can see my hands. You lose bits here and there all the time. Well, nothing to lose a finger and damage yourself. So yeah, I didn't want him to go fishing because if he plays a piano, which he does, and a guitar, he wouldn't be much good with no fingers. So I let him carry on and do his music. Some jobs are more than work. They're your life, if you're lucky. Despite a failed marriage and missing fingers, I'd say Malcolm is lucky. How long do you think you'll keep fishing? Until I die, literally. I've had this heart operation six months ago, and I said, the minute I can't work, that's the end for me. I'm gonna go on the biggest cliff we got with a bottle of whiskey get myself drunk and stagger around until I fall off the cliff. <laughs> Though I can't go fishing, I don't want to be alive. I really don't. listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Special thanks to the Mevagizzi Harbor Masters, Matthew Wheeler and Malcolm Solomon. If you like the show, there are a few ways you can help us out. First, let other people know, in person or online. Reading and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts is always great. And you can support the show financially by going to nocturnepodcast.org and clicking on the Donate button. You can also find out more about the show and contact us through the website. Nocturne is a founding member of The Herd, a collective of stellar producers who make fascinating and beautiful podcasts. Find out more at theherdradio.com. Nocturne is produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which provides resources to creative storytellers around the world. Speaking of KCRW, I want to tell you about their newest podcast. It's called Lost Notes, and it's an anthology of documentaries 
collecting some of the greatest music stories never really told. Here's an excerpt from their first episode. Reporter David Weinberg is talking about a rock and roll staple, the first song that almost every teenager learns on guitar, Louie Louie. Richard Berry's version, the original recording of Louie Louie, wasn't the one that became a huge hit. The one that rose to the top of the charts was recorded by a band of white kids, the Kingsmen from the Pacific Northwest, who were still in high school when they recorded it in 1963. And against all odds, against all logic, it was their version that became the most famous. Because if you listen close, the recording is kind of terrible. And if you go listen to the episode, you'll hear why that recording is so terrible. You can subscribe now. Just punch in Lost Notes on your favorite app. Thanks for listening.